And my investigation into the assassination of JFK? You found the evidence you were looking for. Yes, I have proof. It's right here in my pocket. It's big, honey, really big. It goes all the way to the White House. Do you want me to hold it for you? No. It'll be safe right here. I'm in a jet. What could go wrong? Greetings, everyone. You're listening to the podcast, So There I Was. This is episode 14, entitled, Happy Birthday, Yogi. We've had some frightening tales so far, but Fig, this has got to be one of the craziest things I've ever seen or heard in aviation. What say you? I I was terrified listening to the firsthand account of this story. And what a great story, and what a perfect title. Happy Birthday. Yeah. And it not only was it Yogi's birthday, it was his hundredth trap. He became a centurion uh, on this uh, recovery back aboard the USS Lincoln that day. Probably the most memorable recovery of an aircraft on board an aircraft carrier in naval aviation history. And I am not being hyperbolic when I say that. This is nuts. It is nuts. And, and I remember when it happened because we, we all saw pictures of it. I thought to myself back then, that's, that's crazy. And right. how lucky are we to be able to talk to those guys today and hear them tell their story? What a right. great story. Yeah. And it was fun to catch up with them and meet them and learn of their story. And they also gave some credit to Nasty, who was the paddles that day to wave them back aboard the ship. It, that was interesting to hear Nasty take command of an aircraft carrier and tell the captain not once, but three times to straighten out that he would take the wind. <laughs> we'll include that audio. That's unprecedented, right? right? Unprecedented. Yeah. And that is also just another piece of this story that makes it so incredible. So no further hesitation. Here we go, folks, with happy birthday, Yogi. So every great aviation story begins. Well, welcome everyone. This is Fig from Kansas City, joined by my co-host. Repeat. Co-host and co Now I'm not even going to try. Repeat here from Dubai. <laughs> Greetings, everybody. <laughs> Just, you know, butchering the language. It's what we do here. So this it's week. Kind of a tradition. This week, speaking of traditions, we've broken our tradition of having one guest on. We've got two guests on. And if you've listened back to uh, the episode that we had with Sheriff, I asked him a question if he knew Yogi. So he says, yeah, I, I was in that squadron. I, I, I know Yogi. Yogi, welcome. You're coming to us from Atlanta today, right? Yeah, just outside of Atlanta. Okay. Corners. Yep. Great. What was your background in aviation? How'd you get involved in my dad was a P2 P2V pilot before I was born, and then he flew for Eastern. So I was, you know, I grew up airplanes, 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 
when I was 13, I got glasses. And my first thought was I'll never be a naval aviator because I knew you needed perfect vision. And then senior year of college, I was just in, you know, talking to the recruiter and he said, have you ever thought about being a bombardier? And um, I'm like, sure. Um, and uh, I figured it's as close as I'm going to get, right? As close to, to my go. childhood dream, right? Um, and I was actually in this special program. It was a reserve program where I was two years of training and then I was supposed to go become a weekend warrior. Um, and so I was guaranteed the A6. I was guaranteed to be a bombardier. It wasn't you know, something where I was going to go through training and get assigned wherever. So uh, that sounded awesome to me. And so I joined up and did aviation officer candidate school in Pensacola, Florida and flight school and, and then into the, into the rag at VA 128. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I got a question, Yogi. Sure. Uh, this, this program, they sold it to you as uh, two years active duty and then you could do the rest of the reserves in the A6. Yep. Is that right? Yep. What, what, yeah, what, was it, what was the name of that program? Do you recall? OSAM. O-S-A-M. O-S-A-M program. All right. You, you sound that. familiar. That's awesome. No, uh, it was a very small program. And then and then I actually told repeat this when we connected. I was in the rag and I'm flying A6s, you know, we're riding in A6s up through the Cascade Mountains. And it's, you know, late fall, early winter. So there's winter, there's snow on the mountains and we're flying low levels through these mountains. I'm like, damn, this is fun. So I actually I had earned a regular Navy commission from aviation officer candidate school. So I took it and that's how I wound up in a fleet squadron. Cause I wasn't supposed to be in a fleet squadron. I was, uh, oh, I was yeah. supposed to go straight from the rag to the reserves. And I, uh, I, I changed my mind as my wife reminds me periodically. So you, so you didn't have to go Navy through all the things you not. went through. <laughs> but that's right. I didn't have to go through any of that. So, uh, <laughs> But it wouldn't have been wouldn't have been nearly as much fun, right? No kidding. Um, well, awesome. So just real real quick, my recollection is we had another guest on on a previous episode who talked about riding in the P two. That was the the P two Neptune, right? And it had both a prop yeah. and a jet engine on it. It was an anti sub. He was just in the prop. Oh, he okay. was never in the jet. Down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Is that Chaz repeat? Yeah, that was, was that Chaz. Chaz. He was yeah, riding around in uh, Indiana. Okay. He he wound up changing over to the Navy. I, he was doing. He was going to do the Marine Corps thing, and someone talked him into going Navy. So, all right, smart man. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, the, I got to say, there's. I'll give the Navy this credit. First of all, we all wear the Navy wings of gold. But the Navy also, yeah, yes, when you're an yes. aviator, you're an aviator. You aren't a grunt first. You aren't humping a right. rifle through the woods and doing all that stuff. That, and there's uh, that. Generally speaking, okay. sucked. <laughs> so, all right. And also joining us from uh, from Guam today is Master. Welcome, Master. Tell us about your background. How did you get into naval aviation? Uh, like Keith, uh, I remember when I was a, a kid, my dad making – models airplanes he used to fly he was enlisted uh, combat air crew back in the uh, 50s so he flew on a grumman guardian which i guess was the largest single engine piston driven airplane to fly on and off aircraft carriers but uh, he was a uh, radio operator and electrician by trade i guess it was uh that was back when the radars were so big that the airplanes had to operate in pairs one was the uh, the hunter that had the uh, radar and 
you know, took up the entire payload of the airplane. And then the, uh, the killer had the, had the weapons, but he told me stories about these airplanes that, you know, obviously hadn't been in the fleet forever and bases he were, had been stationed at that no longer existed. And so I, I remember thinking, wow, this guy must really be old. And of course now I am my dad. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I went to the Merchant Marine Academy and decided that I was going to go uh, into the Navy. I wanted to be in a flight slot, not a driving boat slot. And I managed to get a flight slot while I was uh, at Kings Point, went active duty in 86 and down in uh, Beeville, Texas. Of course, it doesn't exist anymore. And then uh, up to Woodby to fly sixes that don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah, right. They, yeah, the airplane's gone. The uh, But Beeville's a federal prison now. That's my understanding. Yeah, that's what I understand. Crazy. Yeah. No kidding. So uh, the Merchant Marine Academy, I ha- actually had a flight student when I was teaching in Harriers, and we were gone up to Plattsburgh for vertical landing practice. The nice thing about Plattsburgh was it had a concrete runway, and the Air Force had huge water tankers that we used for water injection on the engines. And we could load those airplanes up with water a whole lot faster than we could at the Marine Base. And it was cooler temperatures, allowing us to do more hover practice. And we're flying back south down to Cherry Point and we're passing over the big port there in New York and New Jersey. And I look down and I see this dock sticking, looked like a half mile out into the water. And I noted it and he goes, Oh, that's a super tanker port and started rattling off all this stuff about super tankers. How do you know this stuff? Well, I went to the merchant Marine Academy and that's, that's how I got my commission. And I went to Uh the what, what, a what? I had never heard of it, and I think still think that's one of the best-kept secrets. So how would you find the Merchant Marine Academy? I was in California. The last place I lived there, my dad worked the Forest Service. We moved around a lot, and I went to three high schools and couldn't tell you how many elementary schools. But uh, the last place I lived was in uh, Benicia, which is right across from Vallejo, and California State has a California State Maritime Academy there. So I looked at that, thought that was kind of interesting, found out about the uh, federal one. But, yeah, it's like you said, it's nobody knows about it. It's a really well-kept secret. Yeah, and a, and a commissioning program, so that's cool. So I interrupted yeah. you, sorry. After Beeville, you selected uh, A6s? Yep. And where did where did that take you? West Coast, uh, up in a rag, and then VA-95. I joined them on cruise, flew out to uh, the Philippines and got in a cod and Went out and joined them. They were, uh, like I said, Enterprise. It was the Enterprise's last cruise before it got refueled. So we ended up going all the way around the world and dropped it off on the East Coast. And then uh, back to uh, Whidbey, and that took us out of our uh, normal rotation. We ended up picking up the uh, Abraham Lincoln out of the yards and um, brought it down around South America because obviously it wouldn't fit through the uh, canal off to the West Coast. And then uh, Gulf War One broke out, and then we uh, headed out on the uh, on the Lincoln cruise for the uh, maiden cruise of the Lincoln. To relieved all the uh, carriers up in the Gulf that fought uh, fought the war. Okay, wow. Now you mentioned something there called the COD. Explain what the COD is, please. The COD stands for Carrier Onboard Delivery, and it brings people, uh, parts, and most importantly, mail out to the uh, aircraft carrier. And so my only my only thought about the COD is that probably the only thing more terrifying than landing an airplane on an aircraft carrier is riding in an airplane landing on an aircraft carrier. You get used yeah, to yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you get yeah. used to it, right? Yeah. As a BN, you get used to it. 
right? But at least you, know, you have an ejection seat handle and and can see what he's doing. Whereas yeah, in a cod, true. you're just you're just a blind rat in the back. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> that's terrifying. Right. <laughs> so uh, don't those seats face backwards? They do. Yes, they do. Yeah. They do. No windows facing backwards. Taking a cat shot in the back of a cod is also quite interesting as well. So. <laughs> Oh gosh, <laughs> please no, <laughs> never. So, all right. So, so as a BN, you got used to uh, not having the stick in your hand for uh, takeoff and landing, but you could at least see what was going on. When did right. uh, when did you two first meet? And and did you fly together as a team regularly? Or I joined the BA ninety five shortly before we did. We took the Lincoln around South America, and they had me paired with a more senior guy first. Diamond Dave Horton and um, flew with him for a couple of months. And then I don't know, Mark, when do you think we, we got, we got paired up? Was it right before cruise? It was, it was a few, at least a few months before cruise, right? Probably during workups for the cruise. Cause they, yeah. if I remember correctly, they pair cruise up uh, for workups. So you get used to working together before you go on, go on cruise. Yeah, so I'd been in the squadron not even a year at that point when when we got paired up. Okay, and so is it a hundred percent of the time, or yeah, hard hard crew pairs? No, they you would get paired with somebody and you'd do your training in order to do the night low levels, but you could be paired with anybody else. Okay. If you're doing night low levels, they want you to work with the same person, and then after several months, you know, you have a senior pilot and a junior BN, and then six months later, whatever, they'll rotate it. They'll have two kind of mid-range, a pilot and BN, and then a senior BN and a junior pilot. Um, but no, you could fly with it. You, you could fly with anybody. Okay. But most of the time, I guess, they, they wanted a majority of the time guys working together so you could kind of finish each other's thoughts, for, for lack of Correct. a better. Okay. And and the night low, no, low level in the A6 was quite the uh, – <laughs> epitome of teamwork and and so they you know you really had to kind of work together in order to do a night low level in the a6 okay can you describe what that's like to, like what what what's that mean because uh you know pretend i have no clue what you're talking about okay well we sat side by side pilot on the left bn on the right we had no night vision goggles we didn't have gps at the time this was the a6 was an old aircraft and the way I describe it to people is the pilot had great vertical vision. Like he could see the, the, the mountain in front of him is, you know, X thousand feet above him or a thousand feet above him and very limited horizontal vision. And the BN had really good horizontal vision, but limited vertical vision. And so between the two of you, you had a, a good view of what was ahead of you. So we would fly a couple hundred feet off the ground and go down a mountain valley and, you know, it's pitch black out and we're just on radar and following the curves of the valley as you're making it through the mountain range. And my head was usually in the boot. Uh, I'm looking at the radar, a little, little, little thing to keep the light of the radar from bothering the pilot. But I can remember, you know, looking out. Would you give him steering cues? Yeah. And we would, we would be talking and I'd say, Hey, I see something ahead of me at, you know, two miles. And he said, yeah, it's several thousand feet. And then we, I would say, okay, we got a right hand turn coming up at, at 30 degrees and in, you know, 
a mile or whatever. And it's all pre, you know, we, you brief it in, in advance. It's not like you're just kind of freewheeling it through the, through the, through the valleys. You, you brief it in advance. So you kind of right. know what's coming. So, but I can remember looking out one time in the training command and we're in this mountain valley and I look to my right and it's just mountain as high up as I could see, like less than a half mile. And on the left side, mountain as high up as I could see. And then ahead of me, a mountain as high up as I could see because the, the, the valley curved. I'm like, I better get back on this radar and steer us around this curve. And you're asking yourself at this point, why am I not selling shoes in a mall? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So what I want to do then is get into the event that brought your name to my attention. And I can do that by simply asking the question we regularly ask here on the show, which is what is the scariest thing or the funniest thing? that ever happened in naval aviation to you and when guys get stuck a little bit i always go well did you ever reach for the handle which which one of you wants to start perhaps yogi because you you lose perspective midway through the event as i recall. right right yeah so i'll, I'll i can talk the beginning and then after the aftermath a little bit so there we were so there i was in the a6 there we were yeah. right and we just rounded the tip of India, heading towards the Persian Gulf. We were, it was blue water ops at that point. And um, it was my 26th birthday. Uh, and a, day um, a daytime or nighttime, Yogi? This was a daytime, uh, early afternoon flight. And our mission that day was overhead tanker. Take off, take the okay. excess fuel from the tanker, uh, from the cycle in front of you. And then you hang out at 8,000 feet. Other planes take off and some of them come up and get gas at the beginning of the flight and then go off and do their missions while, as, while others go off and do their missions and then come get gas at the end of the flight for landing. So it's really busy at the beginning and end. And in the middle, it's just dr drone in circles in the sky at 8,000 feet above the carrier. So we were about halfway through the cycle, um, about 45 minutes into it. And one of our drop tanks the fuel wasn't transferring from the drop tank into the plane. And so therefore it wasn't usable. And that's in the A6 happened, I don't know, what do you say, Mark, 10% of the time. And the way you fix it is the pilot porpoises the plane. He moves the stick back and forth and he just porpoises the plane, causing some negative Gs and it unsticks the valve. It's really no big deal. Um, so Mark, he pointed at the fuel gauge and we'd been watching it. And I shook my head and I kind of made a motion with my hand for him to, you know, move the stick. So he sped up a little bit and he started to porpoise the plane. And then the weirdest thing happened. My helmet touched the canopy of the, pl of the plane. And I literally, the first thought that went through my head was I forgot to strap in my seat straps and I'm floating, you know, up in the, <laughs> up and up and and hitting the cockpit. I'm like, shit, right. I'm gonna, you know, I gotta fix that. And then there was a bang, like a shotgun going off. And then there was a pop as the plane decompressed. And then I had 275 knots of wind in my face, Gosh. which is interesting. And my first thought was that the canopy, the top of the canopy, had had popped off. So I tried to duck down beneath the windscreen and beneath the dashboard and I couldn't get out of the wind. So I thought, well, maybe the windscreen had popped out, you know, and I'm getting all this wind. 
And, but still I can't get out of the wind and I'm still sitting in my seat and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I look to my left and where I should have seen Mark's right thigh, because we sit side by side, he's a little bit in front of us, uh, a couple inches in front, where I should have seen his thigh, I'm looking through the top of the canopy down at the top of his head. I am sitting in my ejection seat from the waist on up outside the plane. That's a sight I will never forget. Honestly, I will never forget that sight. Did you think you were having an out-of-body experience or something? (laughs) It was was just like, what the the fuck? Um, Well, then my helmet and oxygen ripped off, right? So then then my helmet and oxygen ripped off. So now I truly have all this wind in my face. And I said to myself, I don't know what's going on, but I'm pretty sure something bad's happening. I'm going to eject, right? I could stand up in front of a board and say, this was a, this was a good decision. So I grabbed the handle between my legs and I pulled and it wouldn't budge. It just wouldn't move I'm like shit. So then I tried to reach for the handles over, over the top of my head, but I'm a tall guy. I sit pretty high. Actually, a lot of guys in our squadron sat pretty high, but I sit pretty high. And I couldn't, as I'm reaching back for it, the wind is pulling my arms out of, uh, so I can't grab it. So I just pull my arms oh, into wow. um, to my chest. That's when I realize I can't breathe. I'm suffocating. So I'm because kicking the, my feet. Because so much wind was coming at your face? Yeah. So it turns out, I never get this right. It's either the Bernoulli effect or something, but when air goes by a small opening, it creates a vacuum and it was sucking the air out of my lungs. Oh shit. Yes. So yeah, it's like sucking gas from Mm. a, from a car. Yeah. So it was uh, cutting the air out of my lungs. Couldn't get air in your lungs. So um, I got my arms, you know, across my chest. I'm kicking my feet because suffocating is uncomfortable. Um, yeah. And, you know, they teach you how to, they do all that, uh, air crew training and they show you what lack of oxygen is like. And I started feeling the lack of oxygen and the tonal vision and it starts to go dark. And the last thing I remember is saying, I don't want to die. And then wow. black. Wow. So master, so, pick it up from there. I'm, I'm terrified right now. I know the outcome, but I'm terrified right now. <laughs> Master, jump in. I think it's appropriate for you here to see. Yeah. All right. So uh, there I was, or this is no oh, shit, or however the sea stories right? start. But uh, kind <laughs> yeah. of to, to put this whole thing in context. Hey, no shit. This, this was, is uh, yeah. This is this is a bad day, but it was a bad day and a string of bad days for the air wing. So prior to that, we'd lost three airplanes and two flying days. The day before we pulled into uh, Singapore, two Tomcats had a midair. Keith and I were out flying around and. We're going to get to do a uh, ACM hop, which you never do in the A6 with another guy in our squadron, another crew in our squadron. And we're just turning in and we get a call from a strike and strike is the guys that run everything on the uh, aircraft carrier. Strike calls us up and says, your new mission is SAR, which of course got our yeah. attention and they gave us a vector. So search and rescue. Yeah. Tomcat in the water. So well, this is, this is bad. So we went zipping on over Buster, we call it go fast, you know, for an A6. 
headed over. And as we got to the spot, we looked down and there was a kind of a oily residue spot down in the water, but there was an S3 and a, uh, on a Hornet down there already. And one of the big dangers out there off the aircraft carrier, when anything goes wrong is uh, midair after the mishap when everybody converges. So we checked, made sure everything was okay. And then we got the hell out of there, came back and landed. And uh, one of the airplanes ended up going into Singapore, missing six or eight feet of its wing. And the other one went down in a ball of fire. It got the uh, wing went through right behind the Rio through the, uh, the body of the Tomcat. And they went down in a ball of fire, managed to punch out. Oh, good. So we, Went into port Singapore. Hey, nobody died. You know, it's bad, but it's not that bad. Pulled out first day out of Singapore. Tomcat comes in for the break and the uh, wings didn't auto program forward. So we stalled the airplane, beam the LSO platform. Airplane went upside down. They hung with it until it went right side up. They punched. Airplane splashed in the water. We lost, like I said, three airplanes. Nobody died. So it wasn't that bad, but it was still concerning. It was definitely a black cloud hanging over the air wing. So Keith and I are scheduled to fly the next day. We're doing a tanker hop. And so everybody was on pins and needles and had their uh, pocket checklist out going through all their emergency procedures, you know, just in case, because things were going badly. Went out, manned up. I still had the butterflies. We blast off. And like Keith said, we've been really busy at the beginning of the tanker hop. So we went up, did all our stuff and on station. And I was finally starting to relax. (laughs) And then we went Uh to uh, unstick the float valve. So from my perspective, we had a lot of nonverbal communication going on in the A6 because you're sitting right next to the guy pointing at the drop tank and he nods. We all know what we're doing. And the A6 tankers were all the old airplanes. And it was not uncommon in the A6 not only to have stuck float valves and drop tanks, but when you go to fix it, apply negative G to the airplane and both generators drop offline, both generators drop offline, the canopy solenoid switch drops down to a neutral position and the canopy opens up a little bit. So pretty common. So with all that in mind, pull back on the stick, add some power because you're sitting there at uh, max conserve, not going very fast, no G available. Like he said, add some power, pull back on the stick a little bit, bunt the nose and just kind of floated me in the seat. And I hear a bang, feel the, uh, the cockpit depressurize and kind of instinctively duck, look up, and I'm looking at the canopy bow, looking for it to be open like it always is, and it's closed. It's like, that, that's weird. Eyes go to the canopy switch. It's in the opposite up position. Yeah, that's also weird. I wonder what's going on. And I, I looked right, and kind of the opposite of Yogi's perspective, I look right, expecting to see his head, looking at me going, what the hell's going on? Because that's what I'm thinking. And instead of his head, I'm looking right. at his thigh. That's not good. And I just basically followed it back up and over my right shoulder. And here's Keith looking down at me. He's got his helmet on, visor down, oxygen mask on. He's looking at me and I can pretty much see the cartoon exclamation points and question marks (laughs) coming out of his helmet. (laughs) He's looking down. And, you know, none of this makes any sense. It's like, well, why did he eject? But if he ejected, why is he still here? So this is, you know, does not compute. And while I'm going, did you guys? All this, hey, uh, Master, did you guys have the command eject option so one of you could take both of you out, or how, how did you get? What was your SOP for that? I'm trying to remember when. I don't think that airplane had it. And that airplane did not. No. Oh, okay. no. So yo yo, you're on your own. Yeah. 
they were they were retrofitting. We, we had some planes in the squadron at that time with commanded jack but before that there was no commanded jack it was everybody's on their own but that plane had not okay, been retrofitted okay. yeah so he's he's out there in the wind and um what is going on and he got slammed down and then he slammed back up in the in the wind blast and i couldn't see his helmet and oxygen mask leave it was there and then it was just gone it just disappeared and that that's when things wow, started getting ugly fast um i always describe it as um this old schwarzenegger movie where he's on mars and uh, he ends up outside the atmosphere and you know what he looked like is his eyes are bulging out and his cheeks are puffed out and that's that's what keith looked like i mean you couldn't take your hands and stretch his eyelids out or his cheeks out as far as they were they were puffed out and every once in a while he'd get slammed out slammed back you guys were doing like two 270 ish knots yeah maybe a little slower than that but uh probably 250 but you know that's like 275 miles an hour i guess so we'll give him give him that number anyway yeah. doing the math yeah oh, but geez. uh so my you know i really don't know what's going on here but what i really need to do is slow down was the uh my primary concern so you know pull the power to idle got the speed brakes coming out and a6 design for battle survivability you can't just throw the flaps and slats out you there you isolate the uh, hydraulics so you have to throw a switch de-isolate to get hydraulics running back out to the wings so you can do that get the flaps and slats going down um Thought well, you know, we're heavy. I got a lot of gas. I can get lighter if I if I dump this gas. So I started dumping gas again, just trying to get slow. And uh, we're going all that fast, like I said. So we've got AOA angle of attack indexers uh, that give you slow on speed and fast, and uh, just it sits up in your peripheral vision. On the, the you're looking forward to from the pilot side. So I was. Slow on the airplane to on-speed optimum angle of attack um, as the airplane got lighter and as the flaps and slats came out, just slowing it down as much as I can to try and take the load off of Keith. And still not exactly sure what was going on, but he was appeared to be partially ejected was the term that made sense to me. Um, called up and normally, again, you're on the frequencies you're on, you're on a tanker common frequency on one radio and on the other radio you're on... Uh, on the strike frequency, which is not the, um, what the, the air boss, the guy who's running everything around within five miles of the ship and the guy who controls what's going on, on the deck is on. So I came up and, uh, said, you know, mayday, mayday, mayday is five, one, five, my band's partially ejected, yada, yada, yada. God strike doesn't care. He can't really help, but to his credit, he understood that there was a problem and he reminded me, Hey, I need to be on another frequency as I Roger switch button six. So the preloaded, frequency on channel six on our radios okay. so i switched okay. over and made they did my whole spiel again and the uh, the air boss and i don't remember his name but he was a, an unnaturally calm individual and um of course for yeah for people that don't understand you can't just come back and land on an aircraft carrier because they have to have everything out of the way and the, the wires ready and the, um, the ball turned on all that stuff has to be done and in mid-cycle, there are airplanes parked in your landing area, so you can't just come back and land. But there's a, a term that we use called emergency pull forward, meaning get everything out of the way so I can come back and land. And so I, I told the boss what was going on, and I told him, man, I need an emergency pull forward. And you know, 
in his very calm voice. Roger that. Come on in. And so this happened. We were about seven miles of beam the ship pointed aft and I just started a big descending turn to try and get behind the uh, behind the boat. So here we are going down and Keith is kicking so I know he's still alive. So that was, that was good. He's getting beat up but he's not dead. So that's good. And somewhere in the descent he quit kicking. Oh. And oh boy. Yeah. So that was that was not good and while I was doing everything else I was periodically snatching views of him over my my right shoulder and when he quit kicking like oh shit looked up and keith is up there his arms are spread out to the side you know it's called kind of a semi-crucifixion pose his head was uh turned to the left and his chin was basically on his left shoulder and he was turning gray and he wasn't moving Oh. oh boy you know, based on everything that had been going on in the air wings, like, oh, great. You know, we finally killed somebody. He's my buddy, and he's sitting right here. I can touch him, and there's nothing I can do for him. <laughs> so that was causing me a fair amount of stress. So I, I'd say, okay, you got to get yourself together, and I quit looking at Keith after that. I'm six miles out as a deck looking. Roger, uh, you set yourself up for a straight in the F-515? Understand you're setting yourself up for a straight end. That's affirmative. Roger. Five one five, understand your BN is still with you, is that correct? That's affirmative. He's hanging out in the airstream. Just Peter's still in here. Roger. Six one two, are you copying this? 616, Tower, you copying? Roger, close support starboard. 616 is uh, right alongside uh, the aircraft, so we'll follow you back. Roger. Um, continuing the descent down, and the, uh, the boat, you know, the boat, they just want to turn into the wind, right? They're, they're boat drivers, and right. they know their job is to turn into the wind while if there's no wind they got to make their own wind but they're turning into the wind turning into the wind turning into the wind so they're messing with my lineup because i got to come back and land and they're turning my landing area so it's like uh, okay hate you guys hate you guys hate you guys trying to get out around behind the ship and um you know they're they've always find it interesting going to you know how people behave or respond under pressure you know you go like go to Sears school and watch how guys are under a whole lot of pressure there and right. uh, when you first get in the military and you're going through you know boot camp or whatever the version of that is you watch people and how they react and things that stand out and one of the things that stood out to me was before we left on cruise i told keith's wife michelle hey don't worry i'll take care of keith and one of the things that hit me is what am i going to tell michelle because i i gave her my word i would take care of this guy and here he is so this is you know what am i going to do this is not good don't want to deal with this off the shell. Yeah. <laughs> you lied. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're coming down and the, uh, the LSOs got to the platform. Somebody gave them the call and they were out there. And the guy who was the uh, air wing uh, 
paddles, we call them, airwing LSO, nasty, great guy for a Tomcat guy. But uh, he ended up uh, going on. He was CEO of the Reagan, and then uh, he ended up getting, at least, I think, at least two stars or something like that. Nice. But a uh, really fantastic guy. Again, always completely calm. And so he starts talking to me. Okay, you know, bring it on in. And uh, asking me how the airplane was handling. And I guess at some point, I, I wonder why he's asking that, but kept going. I'll get back to that later. Yeah, Ship's still turning. Said. And I'm still chasing, trying to get online up. And, oh, yeah, we're near the equator, and we've been up at 8,000 feet, and we're about four miles behind the ship, and the front one screen fogs over. It's like, oh, oh. Murphy's Law, here we go. I hadn't even thought of so, that. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm cussing. I turn the defog on max, and I'm like, you know, I don't have all that much time. I'm going to have to unstrap where I can reach up and wipe this off so I can see, and about the time I'm getting ready to pop my upper coat fittings, which are what attach you to the parachute, um, the, the windscreen started to clear. It's like, okay, that's that's good. Boat's still turning. And then uh, here the, uh, the CAG paddles, the LSO, come up and tell the commander of the aircraft carrier, and nobody tells the CO of an aircraft carrier anything. You might respectfully ask him something, but you would never tell him anything. Yeah, yeah. And I hear the LSO tell the CO, hey, Captain, straighten out. I'll take the winds. And again, you're kind of, that may be the funniest thing I've ever heard. It's like, you know, how does this guy walk with, you know, anatomy that large <laughs> that he tells the CO of the ship to do something? But That's finally awesome. the ship starts right. straightening out. It's like, okay. Okay, bring it back to the left now. The boss, steady out right here. I'll take the wind. 39, slightly left. Copy. Okay, flying just a little bit low. Roger. Tower, steady out right here. Got 39, slightly forward. I'll take the wind, Cap. Steady up. But, you know, touchdown, and you can feel the aircraft roll over each wire. Right. And normally after your main mounts hit the wire, it's, you know, what split second before the, uh, the hook should catch the wire. Well, I felt the airplane roll over the one wire, the two wire, no. three wire, and I finally no. felt the acceleration. Yeah. So Paddles was calling uh, attitude, attitude, attitude. Okay, just a little bit low. Just a little bit low, come left. That paddle's talked down, I got you. Come a little bit left. A little bit of right rudder. A little bit of right rudder. We're on center line. On center line. A little right for lineup. Don't go high. Don't go high. Attitude, attitude, attitude. So it, 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 you grabbed the three wire? Yeah. So we ended up, yeah. Hook skip one, hook skip two, cut the three. Because you're, we you were a flat attitude. You, your hook wasn't grinding into the into the deck then, I guess. Is it? Yeah. The, the A6, um, if you didn't hold a fair amount of backstick pressure, it would it would hook skip the, the new airplanes, Hornets, things like that. They don't, they, they've fixed all those problems. But right. uh a6 still had that problem yeah caught the three and it was enough time for me to think as we're rolling across the wires 
oh great, now I get to test the spool up time of the J-52s, the engines, as we dribble off to the end of the deck on my really bad day, getting even worse. Oh, but boy. finally felt the tug, say, okay, that's great. And it was a the least deceleration I've ever felt in a, in a trap with the, <laughs> with the power, and I don't like that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. obviously you yeah. didn't impale uh, you didn't impale Yogi on the canopy shard, right? Which was your goal? Yeah, we find out later. So he was as the seat went through his um, through its sequence, and I don't know we can get back in why it did that later if you want. But basically, as it did all these things, it disconnected him from the seat. So he was not attached to the airplane except for those parachute risers which went around the head box, the ejection seat, and his parachute was wrapped around the tail. That's what basically pulled him out the top, right. what happened. But, um, yeah, he was he was not connected at all. So it's at, terrifying. at that point, the, yeah, the air boss say, we got you, you're chocked. And then um, we're waiting for the uh, – shut the engines down after he told me I was chocked. And they, uh, in order to – they've got a um, – a cage, basically a platform that a, a forklift that can lift up and put people, or medical people in this case, up close to the uh, up close to the airplane. You're chocked. You're chocked. Strike six six one six banger. Four banger. Roger, you got a visual. Roger, you got a big dual 616. Roger, he's on the deck. Understand that both souls on deck. Affirmative. Roger. Nick 616. 616 Tower, I'm going to be bringing you aboard the Fantail for stuff here. Roger. 616 Banger. Uh, be advised, no one in the water this time. There's no one in the water. Roger, understand. So we're waiting for those guys to uh, get there, and I take my upper and lower handles and unstrapped and was trying to make sure that Keith's seat was safe as well, and that's when he woke back up, and he was asking what was going on, and it's like, oh, we just, we just landed and think you're going to be okay, but you may not want to move around too much right now. Oh, oh my God. Okay. So I, I got, I got several questions, yeah. several questions. Uh, but, but first and foremost, you know, from the, from a pilot's perspective, uh, I, I've seen pictures. Matter of fact, I remember what, what was the name of the magazine that came out like once a month? Um, you know, jumping bats. What were those boys? Approach. Yeah. Approach. approach. That's it. So yeah. I remember seeing the pictures and I read the article, uh, from, from back then, from, from your incident. Uh, did you have any control built any any hint at all uh master that the parachute and lions were go, going after kind of wrap around the tail I, I had absolutely no idea i mean i and actually after they got keith out and they put him on the bomb elevator and sent him down to medical and they towed me out and we pumped the canopy open manually as far as we could slide it back with his seat still up blocking away and me squeezing out. I never even looked back at the airplane. I didn't know until that night I went down and looked at the airplane in the hangar bay. And that's when I first realized that the parachute had been wrapped around the tail. I had no idea. 
<laughs> and 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 it wasn't just wrapped around the tail. I mean, what, when Mark was talking about the landing, if you watch the video, it the parachute acted as like a shoulder harness for me. My shoulders right. never went forward when we landed. My head and arms flew forward, but my shoulders stayed pinned back to the seat. It was wrapped. The parachute was wrapped tight enough around the back end of the plane to keep me from flying forward, but not tight enough to interfere with his flight controls. That's wild. Wow. I mean, what? This, how many things was, had to go right? And that was your birthday. It was it not your birthday? It, it was. It was my. It was my twenty sixth birthday. Absolutely. And, and you made it special another way too, didn't you? That's right. And and it was my one hundredth carrier land. By the way, just just as an aside, gotta make your centurion trap special. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, terrifying. Wow. Okay, so the next the next question is, uh, I, I know uh, I know after they actually, thank goodness, they had uh, an airplane and all the parts there to investigate. What was the cause of the seat going up the rails? You want to take this one, Mark? Okay. Um, the ejection seat, uh, that Martin Baker, that was also in the Tomcat, the Prowler, I'm not sure what else other airplanes, but, um, it sits in two channels that are mounted to the floor of the cockpit. And then there are rollers top and bottom on either side of the seat. And those four rollers, two on each side slide into these channels and that guides it down in where it sits. So it's actually free to move up and down these channels, except there's a piece of flat aluminum stock that comes out of the back of the uh, cockpit wall there, and there was a hole cut in that, and it's a square hole rather than a round hole, and there's a bolt that goes through that piece of metal and into a uh, basically a nut that's in the seat and that keeps the seat from moving up and down vertically well okay. square hole subject to uh, fatigue cracks there were cracks and they call that the that hole the upper latch window and so when we push negative the top of that hole separated and allowed the seat to start traveling up the rails and when it starts traveling up the rails, there's a, a striker pin or a firing pin that starts firing off the CADs, which are basically glorified shotgun shells that generate hot gas in order to make the seat do different things. And one of the first things it does is it fires the drogue weight, and there's a lead weight about, I don't know, six inches long and about a half inch in diameter that's attached to the drogue parachute. Well, when it fired that drogue weight, it blew it through the top of the canopy which pulled the drogue parachute out, which pulled the main parachute out, which pulled Keith and the seat out, but it's not really designed to be going that fast, 230 knots, whatever it is we were doing. So yeah, parachute came out, billowed up, and then immediately failed and wrapped around the tail of the airplane. So that's why Keith got stuck out the top. Um, other interesting bits of trivia from that incident, the uh, lanyard that fires the rocket motor that right. propels you away from the airplane is 35 inches long. So when it gets 35 inches up the rails, it fires the rocket motor, which would have been fairly bad in this situation. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it went up and there were witness marks on the rails, 35.0 inches where Keith got crimped back and basically, you know, broke out of the rails oh, and my. kept him 
being farther. So he was right, right, right. You know, the, what do they call it? Uh, line stretch and parachute accidents. You know, he was, we were right. basically right at the point where it was going to fire and it didn't. So we were, we were quite lucky in that respect. Something that comes to mind is that your height might have helped save you then, Yogi, because you, had you been a shorter guy, it might have had to travel further before pinning the seat. You know, I mean, I just, wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, perhaps. I, yeah. Wow. I mean, because yeah. that's <laughs> that's the line. You didn't cross the line. I mean, but you were as close to crossing it as you get without doing it. If he was a, if he was an inch shorter, yeah. it would have stretched that cable an extra inch. Boom. Pow. Oh, yeah, the leverage at that. Oh, what a story. Amazing. So what's the next thing you remember, Yogi? Well, so before we before we get to that, because I I, okay. I, I I do tell this story uh, like uh, when people ask. So Mark kind of glossed over a couple of these things as he's coming into land or as he called the, the ship. And he says, my BN is partially ejected, right? A partial ejection is like being sort of pregnant. It just doesn't happen, right? I mean, it's <laughs> you're either ejected or you're not. Right, right. And so, so they were they were confused, right. like what the hell? But they they continued to do what they'd been trained to do, and turning into the wind is you know one of those things. But um, the boss came on at one point and said, "Understand your BN is still with you." And Mark's response was, "That's correct. He's hanging out in the airstream, just his feet are in the cockpit." And there were people that thought that that meant my legs had been cut off. And my feet were sitting in the cockpit while I was hanging out in the airstream. Oh so, you know, there was there was mass confusion on <laughs> on what was going on there. But I also want to echo uh, what he said about about nasty the cag paddles calling the captain of the ship and just having the balls for a lieutenant commander to take over the ship. I actually stayed in touch with with nasty uh, or got back in touch with him. I guess when he was skipper of a carrier, and I told him how. You know, whenever I tell the story, I mention that and how, you know, how great that was. And he said every time that he, say, he talks, you know, comes up with the one MC and says, you know, ready, getting ready for launch, whatever he says, he thinks about that call every single time. So, uh, you know, Nasty is a, I will reiterate, Nasty, Nasty was a great guy. So is a great guy. So I wake up and I got this funny view of the front end of an A6, right? I'm hanging halfway out of the plane looking at the front end and we had taken off from the waste catapults that day. And when you stop on the, you know, the three wire, you're sort of kind of in the general area of where you would start your catapult shot. And I'm like, did we not take off? Did something happen? And there's about a hundred people on the deck looking <laughs> up at me and I'm like, what the hell? And then that, and, and Mark said, we, you know, we landed and it, then it all came rushing back like, Oh shit. You know? So, at that point, they had had the forklift come up and they had a couple of doctors and, you know, medics standing on the little platform uh, of the forklift. They had a seat technician, an AME, Petty Officer Picard, uh, climb on and put the, the pins in the seat to save the seat because, you know, the ejection seat is just a series of explosions and rockets. And they wanted to make sure that, you know, while the doctors were dealing with me, you know that uh everybody didn't go for a ride well, you're gonna fire <laughs> off exactly so oh. so actually my first memory is hearing them saying don't touch them until this until the seat's been set like that that's my first memory of waking up 
Okay. Um, so they saved the seat and then the doctors started swarming over me. Of course, they were worried about my neck. You know, they were holding me in a neck brace. They put me in a neck brace. And at some point I heard one of them say, he's bleeding out of his ear. So I'm not a doctor, but I'm pretty sure bleeding out your ears is on the bad side of yeah. things. Yeah. yeah, good, bad, that's bad. <laughs> so right. I think oh, I, no I, think I learned that in e, uh, no ER way. or something. Yeah. And it turns out I just had a little cut on the inside of my ear and it had dribbled and dribbled out. It was no big deal. Um, so they uh, they took their time and they 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 got me out of the out of the cockpit and into you know one of those steel carry cages. And they put me on the weapons elevator and brought me down to the hospital floor. And they had four Marines there to carry me to the, to the hospital. And I'll tell you now, my left arm had popped out of the socket from the wind and then on the landing had popped back in. So I don't know if you've ever had shoulder injuries, but they suck really, really bad. So I'm lying on this, you know, the metal stretcher cage thing with my arms folded across my chest and the marine who's carrying right by my shoulder with every step his knee is hitting my elbow oh and you know it's hurting <laughs> you know so i'm i'm trying i'm like i'm saying okay stop ow stop okay stop <laughs> finally i just use my command voice i said halt and they all stopped <laughs> I said, <laughs> you're kicking my arm with every step and it hurts. Please stop. And I always say, hey, he was a Marine. I didn't tell him exactly what to do. So he reached down, grabbed my arm, moved it out of his way, <laughs> and then proceeded to keep walking. So he solved the problem. I didn't give him clear direction on what to do. Um, so... Was I oh, I'm assuming that it was a lot of pain when he moved your arm. Oh for you, yeah. Right. Yeah, it was it was quite a lot of pain. Um, but he was no longer kicking it with every step, I can tell you that. So okay. um okay. so they take me to the to the ER, I guess for lack of a better term, down in the infirmary. And they're working on me and you know, taking x-rays of my neck and everything. And uh, and our corpsman, our squadron corpsman, is standing over me, and all he can say is, "Sir, you look like Jesus on an A6." Because, like Mark said, when I came <laughs> aboard, my arms were spread wide like that. Oh. Um, so they uh, they X-rayed they X-rayed my neck. Neck was fine, and they're like, "Okay, well, the other X-ray machines in the room next door, go go over there." I'm like, "What? You're not going to carry me? I mean, I've just been through all this." <laughs> um, so I shuffled over there and like I said, my left arm had popped out of the socket and popped back in on the landing. My right arm, my shoulder, my bicep, and my forearm were paralyzed. They weren't working at all. So I could move my hand, I could move my tricep, but I couldn't lift anything like my arm or my hand or anything. And then of course, everything from the waist on up was just bruised and hamburger and you know, looking pretty nasty. And so I'm lying in the hospital bed that night and I got my left arm strapped to my chest and my right arm in a sling and some poor petty officers feeding me, right? Because my, my arms aren't working. And I remember thinking to myself... Join the Navy, feed the officers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, you know, 
you know, all things considered, not bad, right? I mean, you know, I'll take it considering what it should have been. And, you know, all, all my buddies came down and we were cracking up and laughing about it. And the guy who flew in 515 the night before, he was like, he was a little guy. And he's like, man, that would have killed me. And uh, basically, no harm, no foul, right? I mean, I was a lot. Um, right. Wow. So that was happy uh, birthday on top of all of it, right? That's right. That's right. That's that's amazing. A couple of things that you point out there, and you kind of glossed over, is that uh, one, it's the macabre sense of humor. You're you're sitting there joking about it a, a little while later because some of that stuff, you just have to laugh at it because it would terrify you otherwise, right? So, well, I don't I don't know if you can use this on the podcast, but the guy who was flying it the night before. You know, as they were holding before pushing over to come land, he said what he always does, and he did the night before, was uh, use the relief tube. Okay. And he was using the relief tube, and he said oftentimes his pilot would do a little bit of a negative G when he was doing that, just to, just to mess with him a little bit. Get him to piss on his shoes. Exactly. <laughs> And he's thinking, imagine if that had happened to him in the midst of a piss, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> coming aboard with his, with his dick hanging out, you know? What were you two so, doing yeah. up there? <laughs> that's uh, that's uh, just some of the, some of the, you know, like you said, the, the macabre humor that you, you, you've yeah. got to have to survive in that environment. So, right. That and then the other thing I noted was that your first impression was quote interesting unquote. There you go. There's your typical naval aviator. <laughs> when things start going to shit, you don't panic. You just kind of go, huh, all right, what's going on here? You look around. You know, paddles didn't panic. In fact, took command. Nicely done. Took command of the ship for a second. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Master didn't panic, kind of looked and went, well, shit, you know, and, and the more you started to realize this is bad and it's distracting me, you went, okay, I'm going to turn around and fly the airplane. Got to do what I got to do. That's the hallmark of uh, professional aviation. I'm, I'm so impressed. So I, I am too. Mark deserves all the credit in the world. I think he skipped over a couple of things that, that I've heard him say over the years, you know, he, he pulled the hook down like 12 times, you know, just wanted to make sure the hook was, you know, he hadn't forgotten that step, but you know, when you come in on an A6 at, at on airspeed, you're not that far from stall speed. I forget how many knots, but you're not that far from stall speed. And he's looking at me th thinking, Hey, this is disrupting the aerodynamics of the plane. I don't know what the stall speed is. Oh, so yeah. when he came in for the landing, he was actually a little bit fast because he didn't want to approach stall speed okay. when he's coming in. So talk about keeping your head and thinking through, you know, not just what are you doing, but why are you doing it? You know, those are some of the things that little things that just were amazing that he could think about those things throughout the flight, you know, when, when all that shit was going on. Right. I picked up on uh, several details that he was talking about that he didn't really come out and say it for one he kept the speed back, kept uh, the descent rate going to try to alleviate the air air loads on you. And the fact that he even forethought, hey, I'm going to consciously have the throttles at idle when we when we land and not go full power like we like you always do to lessen the deceleration trauma on you because he wasn't sure what was going to happen uh, as far as you going forward. 
Right. Right. He, yeah. I mean, he had no way of knowing that you were securely snatched to the back of the airplane. He thought maybe you were going to be impaled on the jagged canopy. Absolutely. Kudos, boys. Nice job. Yeah, absolutely. For non-aviators, he talked about stall speed. People think that refers to the engines. The stall speed, a stall in an aircraft is when the wing quits flying because there isn't proper airflow over the wing. That's referred to as an aerodynamic stall. And the airplane falls out of the sky. When you're at 300 feet, you have no hope of recovery before impacting the ground or the water. That's deadly, uh, to say the least. But Wow. Nice job. Gentlemen, that was... That's a great story. The one thing I will do, I'll put in the uh, post on the website, so there I was .us, I will put the link to GallagherStory.com, which is where you can go and see pictures, hear audio of the conversation between Master and Paddles, and I think the boss is in there at some point too. And see, the, the pictures are just terrifying and impressive all at once. Um, they are terrifying. <laughs> I, I cannot imagine. They are really terrifying. I remember seeing them in the Approach magazine thinking, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So Sheriff replaced you, I think, in the squadron. Is that right? Mm, no. I overlapped with them for a little while. Oh, you overlapped. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He, he, he right. replaced one of the senior guys. It was VA, it was VA 95. Yeah. VA 95. Kind of the the, the the one uh page two Paul Harvey thing, Keith's first flight back uh in the squadron. Um I guess when you, you have nerve damage, which he obviously had, that's why his uh his parts of his arm were paralyzed. Um he didn't tell you, but he went back to a Bethesda and they ran the for hopefully all your listeners have seen the uh, the right stuff and they had the uh uh, Nazi needle test, I think. Well, maybe that's Keith's term for it, but basically, <laughs> that's my term for they, it. Yeah, take a large gauge needle, stick it into your body, and run electrical current through it. Well, that's what they did to Keith, seeing what was uh, wrong with his arm. And he said that was not a lot of fun. But his life, his first flight back, so he's med down for six months oh, because boy. he had nerve damage. So six months passes, and it's time for uh, Keith's first flight. We're back from cruise. We're there at Whidbey. Aircraft availability is not great, but they finally get an airplane for us, and we're going to go back out and get back in the saddle with Keith. We end up in the same airplane, 515. Oh, so no. Whoa. Yeah. No. <laughs> so we're just going to go out and go fly around and in the tanker, and not a lot you can do in a tanker, but it's a nice day, so we're going to go fly the uh, VR-1355, which is fantastically scenic low level through the middle of the Cascades. Okay. But flying through the mountains like that it's always kind of bumpy so here we are zinging through the valleys and looking at the glaciers and what have you but we're getting bounced around and some of the times it's probably what would be moderate turbulence in an airliner and so obviously we're getting you know the negative g spikes and i'm looking over at keith and keith is trying to hold you know 200 pounds of keith and 400 pounds of uh, ejection seat down, firmly planted to the floor with both his arms grabbing onto the uh, side of the airplane, trying to keep him bouncing negative. Right. I'm going to hold this seat in place. That's right. <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. Uh, so uh, after that, I, I always briefed the pilot. I said, if you need to do negative G's, do it. You know, I mean, obviously, you know, safety of the aircraft, whatever. 
try and warn me if you can, but, um, but don't do them just for fun. You know, that was the only thing that kind of freaked me out was negative G's, you know? Um, Gee, I wonder why. So, yeah, exactly. And, and in the bomber version of the plane, I had the computer, but the navigation computer between my legs and it had a handle on it that the maintenance guys used to pull it in and out when they were repairing it. And I would fly around with my hand on that handle, hold, just holding myself in, unless I needed my hand to do the job, you know, unless yeah. I needed it. And that was my safety blanket to fly again for, for 18 months. Yeah. Don't blame me in the least. That's awesome. Yeah. Good procedure. Nobody could blame you for that. Yeah. No way. So you stayed in 18 more months and then uh, wow. pulled the virtual handle, so to speak, to get out of the Navy. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, flying had lost its luster for me, you know, a uh, little bit. Um, Go figure. And, uh, and, you know, the A6, they were getting rid of the A6 and, yeah. you know, so I could get out. So I took, I took the opportunity to get out. Nice. Okay. And then did you stayed in them for a while longer, Master? Yeah, I, mean, I rolled out of the uh, fleet squadron. Um, I went down and instructed in uh, Meridian, Mississippi for a little over three years. Okay. Flying a, flying a TA-4 back when we still had those. That was a great airplane. What years were you there, Master? What year were you in Meridian? 93 to 96. That's the years I was in uh, Kingsville, 93 to 96. Okay. I, I for, a, for a very small amount of time, I was the TA-4 ATOPS model manager from Kingsville. Okay. And I, I flew up to Meridian, and I took a check ride from a – well, he was a Navy F-14 guy, and he was the NATOPS model manager, and I had to have the secret NATOPS model model manager check ride from that guy, and I don't remember his name. I think he was going to well, he was going to one of the majors. He was leaving the, he was leaving the Navy, and so I had prepared for a complete NATOPS check ride. I was going to go up there, and I was not going to be I was not going to embarrass myself. And we take off, and he goes, "All right, uh, you got any questions now?" And he goes, "All right, let's go back." And it was about a 15 minute <laughs> flight. <laughs> <laughs> omni omni vor yeah yeah, yeah. that's the awesome. secret handshake that was the important part exactly it was i had secret hand. i i think i only did it for six months and then we we were transitioned to the t45 and i turned it over to somebody else i don't even remember that part it was too long ago i don't remember what i did yesterday honestly but <laughs> it was a good excuse for a cross country that's right Gentlemen, I, I can't tell you how uh, uh, impressed I am to hear the story straight from you guys. I've read about it, and I remember reading it first, you know, firsthand when it when it happened, and and, um, and here you are all these years later, and you guys are both just first class human beings, and I'm proud to to claim you as naval aviator brothers, and thank you for sharing that with us. I, I can't add to that. I'm impressed. Thank you. We're honored that you guys were able to join us. So Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us on. Lots of fun. So, like I say, I can't add anything more to that. Thanks so much for joining us, gentlemen. Oh, my gosh. What a great, great story. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. So I want to also thank Dave Hamilton over at Mac Geek Gab. That's the best tech podcast going out there, all things Apple and, and more. If you want to reach us or have any questions, reach out to FIG at so there I was dot us or repeat at so there I was dot us repeat spelled r-e-p-e-t-e you can also reach us on facebook and twitter at so there I was dot us slash facebook or slash twitter 
In the meantime, gentlemen, thank you for your service. Thank you for your professionalism. And check six. Open, and old Yogi floats to the ground like a fallen leaf.